some people say like uh, the objective of a prison is to rehabilitate a person. Um, I, I think have that's a, kind of bullshit, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear, about the books you need to read. The legacy of growing up black in a state whose original constitution stated, no free Negro or mulatto not residing in the state at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall come, reside, or be within the state, or hold any real estate, or make any contracts, or maintain any suit therein. And the legislative assembly shall provide by penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such Negroes and mulattoes and for their effectual exclusion from the state and for the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state or employ or harbor them. This legacy is explored with brutal honesty and humor poetry, and above all, with love for the family that is Mitchell Jackson's American family. It is a memoir that uses original storytelling methods to encompass a vibrant personal journey of race, violence, manhood, and tragedy. But it is defined by survival within that chaos. Mitchell Jackson's latest book, Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family, was on everyone's list of best books of 2019, including NPR and Time magazine. Mitchell has, and for good reason, received an avalanche of accolades, including staggeringly smart, electrifying, vulnerable, beautiful, vivid, a dazzling reckoning with race and class. Quite a launch. With that, Mitchell Jackson, welcome to Just the Right Book. Ah, thank you. Thank you for having me. So your first book, The Residue Years, won the Ernest J. Gaines uh, Award uh-huh. for Literary Excellence. You've won a Whitbread. You've gotten numerous fellowships. So success was not new, mm-hmm. but this has been a pretty extraordinary year. What's that been like for you? The book's now coming out in paperback, so you've had... Yeah. A whole year uh, with the hardcover. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I try to live in a space of gratitude for everything that that happens, um, because uh, you know you could you could publish a strong book and and it be Goes published nowhere. to silence. <laughs> um, and then also, you know, I think that I put the work in and that. Uh, I felt when I finished the book, like when I handed in the manuscript for the last time, that I had made something special. And so it's also satisfying to see mm. people that resonate with people, you know. But I, I, I dream big, so I want everything. And then we, you know, you kind of ch- chalk things off and say, okay, this is what's realistic. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels good to see that the work is finding uh, people. And what what is it that you think resonated? Because there, as you said, there's a lot of good books that are published that go nowhere. Yeah. And books that are important to be read. Important right. like this book yeah. is to be read. Yet there's something about you, the book, the moment that has 
somehow electrified a reader and a kind of enthusiasm. What what do you think that is? Because you're pretty deliberate in thinking about what what makes a book. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think any book that catches hold in the culture has to echo um, at, it's in some way what are, I mean, for lack of a better term, like hot-button topics, mm-hmm. you know? So yep. I think about... Um, for example, Between the World and Me came out at the inception, maybe near the apex of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Right. And so to me, that kind of conversation around, you know, blackness and activism and violence and police brutality really helped to not that it was a great book, but that it actually ushered it into the zeitgeist. I think the same thing happened for um, for Claudia Rankin Citizen. Right. right. So. You know, what happens, you know, the the, the, the cover of that book and, and the way that it echoed Trayvon's hoodie, you know, also a part of, you know, Black Lives Matter. I'm like, I don't I can't think of another poetry book that actually had that kind of like national impact on our conversation. So I think, you know, this book has not caught on in, in that way. But I think, you know, we're clearly it should. Well, I, I hope it does. You know, <laughs> I, I also think a book that. should have legs, you know. But I think now we are talking now about race and class and gender and, you know, like, I mean, there it it seems to be that people in power are like reasserting this idea of whiteness. And so a book that kind of critiques that or pushes against that, I think, is a valuable book in this, especially in this moment. You know, and I would I would say um, that my reaction Mm -hmm. to the book. So for people who are listening, I'm white. Mm -hmm. Um. And I was shocked. I was informed. I It rearranged my brain a little bit about how to think about what it might be like to be uh, black. And as I said to you before we started, I feel like if I read it, I need to read it five times, I'd keep reading another book. So here's what it makes me think about. Were you imagining the ideal reader to be a black person or a white person? I I really, I I set out to write even this one and the residue years for what I consider is like a younger version of myself. So Mm. that's like a a 20-something-year-old young black man or person of color who has some education, who hasn't quite given up, but is also involved in some things that he shouldn't be. And is trying to kind of figure out how to situate, like where his his moral, where his morality lies, and what is how is this these things that he's doing defining his character, and someone who's also very curious. Um, I think, you know, you can't like you know Morrison talked about not writing for the white gaze, and I don't think that you can write for the. I don't think that you should write for the mm. white gaze, especially if you're a person of color. But also, you realize that that is a gaze on your work. And so um, there's there's moments there when I'm, I think I'm definitely turning towards a white person and saying, are you complicit in this idea of white supremacy? Mm-hmm. Like, are you flagrantly exploiting people? You know, like, where's your empathy? Like, you know, so I am turning towards them. But I think if I'm turning towards whiteness, it's like to hold up a mirror or to, to, to like ask them a question 
as I think now, as I'm listening to you, Mitchell, when I think about it, I one of the things that might be unique about this book, in a way, is that I can see where it's speaking to both of those audiences because I do think, as I read it, I'm thinking, okay, how are you? not necessarily racist, but not anti-racist. Yeah, you yeah. know, what are you actively, what am I actively doing mm-hmm. to to practice not being racist? Yeah. Right? You know, that's, that's Ibram's book. <laughs> well, that's right. Right. But I do think that, that your book is a reminder mm-hmm. to those of us who say, well, I'm not a racist. Well, then what are you doing about right. yeah. racism? Yeah, it's passivity, yeah, versus being active, yeah. But I want to go back to um, one of the things that you talked about with uh, speaking to a young black man mm-hmm. or, a, or, a, or a man of color. So I want to read... Um, the James Baldwin quote mm-hmm. uh, that you have at the front of the book, which I think is incredibly powerful. Your writing, by the way, reminds me of James Baldwin. Oh, man. That's and a I high read compliment. Everything. That's a high compliment. I've read everything he's written. Wow. I'm just like a James Baldwin yeah. fanatic. <laughs> um, so the quote is, that man who was forced each day to snatch his manhood, his identity, out of the fire of human cruelty that rages to destroy, it knows. If he survives his effort, and even if he does not survive it, something about himself and human life that no school on earth, and indeed no church, can teach. Mm. James Baldwin. Yeah. So the name of the book is Survival Man. Mm-hmm. So the question is... I'd like you to share with us the landscape that you grew up in, right? Okay. The landscape that was the state that had this shocking constitution, yeah. which like blows your mind. Yeah. But what is it that contributed to your surviving it? Um, you know, there's a, a, a kind of popular phrase uh, popular by by that I mean like it's in hip hop, <laughs> uh, where they where people like to tout that they came from nothing. Mm. Um, if you listen to, I don't know, probably sixty percent of the rap music that's on the radio, at some point the the rapper will say I came from nothing, and that to me is patently untrue, and it's also very disrespectful to our forebears. Mm. Um, so I came from a people who. Moved from Alabama, moved from the South like every other black person. Uh, my great-grandmother was college-educated. Yeah. My great-grandfather was a businessman. Um, my grandfather was college-educated. Um, my mother went to college. She didn't finish. Uh, my father, I think he earned his associate. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there was um, my grandfather went to prison my mom went to prison, several uncles, you know, I have a, an uncle now doing life. So there was always this kind of dichotomy, um, at least in my in my personal life. Um, and I was aware of that pretty young. Um, and I think if, if I had to say how the kind of uh, the neighborhood shaped me, it was like having your innocence taken away very early so by the time I was eight or nine or ten like I recognized that there were addicts in the community before that it was you know it was a nice 
neighborhood. I mean, I kind lived in a neighborhood. Kid. Yeah. We had homes, you know, so it wasn't like I lived in a project or anything. We had like the biggest house on the block. Um, Sixth Avenue. Sixth Street, yeah. Sixth Street. The house on Sixth Street. That's right. <laughs> I love that term. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, so. I, I would say that my early life was shaped by my great-grandmother's commitment to religion. Uh, so she had us in Bible school and going to church. I was baptized. Um, and then probably around the time I turned double digits is when my mother's addiction started to be, like, the most affecting, like, aspect of my life. And, and trying shattered to navigate your innocence. Yeah. I mean, maybe bit by bit. I don't know if it shattered it, but, like— Bit by bit, it started to like, okay, well, you can't be a kid anymore. I mean, I remember consciously saying, oh, man, why are you watching cartoons? Like, that's kid stuff. You can't do that anymore. Or, or, you know, I'm not reading any comic books. Like, why would I do that? You know, so just starting to, 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 to consciously say, all right, you have to be more mature than your peers or than what you think a, a child should be. But when you say that, Mitchell, that's obvious when you read the book. Mm -hmm. I was struck by you put together a support group, right? You had your mom with Mm -hmm. all her complexities, Mm -hmm. and you had your pops. Yes. And you, did you, let's start with this. Uh, Tell us about the pops and tell us about your mom. So uh, pops is a composite uh, so, uh, I didn't recognize I was doing this when I was young, but I was finding men in my life and what, um, qualities I wanted to mimic in them or appreciate it in them. And I would like pull it for myself or I would take a note of it. Um, and this is also at a time when, uh, the public discourse is very much emphasizing how many like broken families and how black families never have a, a, a father in the home. And so none of my friends or very few of my friends have their father in the home. There are a lot of single mothers. And so but there are also men in the community who are kind of filling in. And so I, I years later, that's when I was like, oh, what I was doing was making a father from what was around me. And that did include my actual biological father and my stepfather, but they were just a part of mm. what I would say was my composite pops. And it was organic. Yeah. It wasn't like you said, oh, I, I admire this guy's intelligence yeah. or I admire that guy's fortitude. Yeah. It just came together. Yeah. But why do you think, Mitch, you did that mm-hmm. and you were capable of doing that and other kids were not uh i think a part of what uh distinguished me from a lot of my peers was a lack of commitment Mm. um and i and it served me well then because so many well in some cases like so many of my peers would decide on something an aspect of themselves and they would commit fully to it so like if you decided the, the the bad ones or the ones that it didn't work out well for would decide, like, I'm a drug dealer. Once you say, I am a drug dealer, like, that's my identity, then you have to take with it all of the characteristics of a drug dealer, which means at some point you're going to have to be violent, which means, you know, somebody's going to try to take something from you. You're going to have to do something to them, which means you're, you're trying to go vortex. get them. Right. So 
Or if you say, I'm a gang member. Well, if you are a real gang member, that means you're absolutely going to commit to violence. Mm. And so, uh, you know, it could work out in a different way. You can say, like, I'm a great football player. And then you commit to working out. But I never commit. Like, I, I played basketball, but I wasn't like, I am going to be the absolute best. I sold drugs, but I wasn't like, I'm a drug dealer. I never wanted to be a gang member. I never kind of uh, idolize any of those uh, behaviors. So I think I had a lot of peers who I could see when they made the commitment. Mm. And then once they did, they were all in and it took them where it naturally takes you. Yeah. And I, because I was kind of apprehensive and noncommittal, I just kind of got to float by with only like a little bit of the repercussions of any one of those characteristics. So the part of this that that there was a story in there that totally cracked me up. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a mentor in high school. Yeah. You're, uh, he was a guidance counselor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Did and so. you wanted to go play football, and you were annoyed that he discouraged you from playing football. Like, yeah. you thought he was calling you into the office yeah, to yeah. say, guess what, Mitch? I got a scholarship I got for it you. for you. Yeah. I got it for you. And instead... He is encouraging you to apply for, for academic an academic scholarship, and yeah. you get into Portland State, Portland State yep. University. So you start there, and meantime, you're drug dealing. Yes. And uh, you get arrested. Uh-huh. And then tell us how you managed to stay in school despite <laughs> the fact that you got sentenced to 16 months in jail. I was just thinking about this. And <laughs> I one mean, of that's the things, quite a story. Yeah, I mean, very fortunate. Pretty you know? bold. Um, it, I think it just, well, one thing was because I was in college, they actually gave me a lot of leeway in terms of mm. uh, my court proceedings. And so the judge actually allowed me uh to finish out the semester oh really uh, before i yeah so i turned myself in i remember it was june 16th no june it was friday july 13th 1997 mm. and it was it was uh july because we were on quarter system so I, I don't think i got out until like may or something and so that was great and then how it worked out is i just i missed a full school year plus a summer um, and so what I just told the people who were who had my scholarship, hey, look, I have some a family emergency. I'm going to be out for the year. And they didn't ask too many questions and I wasn't offering any more information. And, it, you know, the timing worked out. But really, I think it was the judge, because if he had said, I mean, I got caught like in March. If he would have said, no, now you go, then there would have been I would have had to tell them, you know, well, I'm I'm locked up or maybe not being able to tell them yeah. um, if I never would have bailed out. So. Uh, thankfully, that judge um, thought, enough. and I know this because in my sentencing, he was like, you're in college and you're doing well. And I hate to see this happen to you, but I hope this serves as a lesson and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he's actually become a friend of mine. The uh, judge. The judge. Yeah. Judge Henry Cantor. He was uh, he ended up like on the Oregon Supreme Court and then he was just working for the U.S. court. Uh, and he he retired from the Oregon Supreme Court to work for the the United States court and then retired from the state court. He just, he emailed me and this is how I know we're friends. Like he emailed me like, Hey Mitch, I'm, I'm not working for the Supreme court anymore. I'm here. And Hey Mitch, I'm not here anymore. I'm here. Uh, and he shows Letting up in some readings. Yeah. Well, he's probably 
proud of the decision he made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It worked out, right? Right? It yeah. worked out. And yeah. But I love the idea that you call the school up. Yeah. You're going to jail yeah. for 16 months. Yeah. And you're saying, I just got a family emergency. I'll be back. Yeah. And they keep your scholarship. Yes. So you're in jail for 16 months. Yeah. What happened for you in your brain mm-hmm. during those 16 months? Not much. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, it would be some people say like uh, the objective of a prison is to rehabilitate a person. Um, I think I have that's a, kind of bullshit, right? Yeah. <laughs> I have a, a colleague, Baz Dresinger or Baz Dresinger, who um, she has the a program she started called the prison to college pipeline. So the 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 inverse. Yeah. Um, and she says uh, that most people that make it to prison were never habilitated to begin with. Yeah. Um, and so I would say that I was one of those people who was not habilitated when I got to prison and also was I wasn't very concerned with this idea of rehabilitation while I was there. So I spent a lot of time playing dominoes, most of my time playing dominoes and basketball. Working out. And working out until they took the weights and writing letters to friends. Um, And it wasn't until my last few months where I knew that I was going back to college that I thought I should reacclimate myself to being a student. And that's when I started writing what became uh, the residue years. Mm. It, it it feels, when you read it, like it's a combination of luck, fortitude. Um, but one of the one of the one of the characters mm-hmm. that I was struck by in the book was your mom. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to what you said early in the interview mm-hmm. that it's disrespectful yeah. for hip-hop stars to say they came from nothing. And when I think of your mom, it would be easy to stereotype her as a drug addict. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty clear that you credit her with plenty and have enormous love for her. Describe her for our listeners, because she was, I I like wanted to hug her. Yeah, Yeah. Um, I think mom now is... Um, you know, a person that comes through significant challenges in their life, they have a certain amount of skepticism, but then also optimism because you couldn't have come through those things without that optimism. Um, I think she's um, she has a lot of wisdom um, and she has a unique way of kind of analyzing um, she's really good at analyzing other people's problems, like most people are. Yeah, most uh, of us are good at that. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is um, that I think I, I've kind of taken from her is this idea. So what, one of the things I think is a strength of this book or maybe even the residue years is this perspective that because I wasn't a childhood reader, I also was not... N- indoctrinated is maybe not the right word, but like I didn't have the same ideas instilled in me and saying, this is the most valuable idea. Here's who said it. Here's what the canon is. And so in some ways that allowed me to be a free thinker because I'm building my own canon. Mm. And I don't really have anyone over my shoulder saying, no, you can't like, you got to read Voltaire, you know? So I'm like, no, I want to read this Baldwin book over here. 
Um, and so I think that and being able to do that and then you put that with this experience that I mean, a lot of people are writing about it, but I think it's a different thing to write about it from the Northwest. You know, like if my story was in New York, it would be to me less valuable because there's so many stories like this and it's already so much in print about it. But I think, you know, the the the, the context of the Northwest and the exclusion laws and the idea of whiteness and this idea of liberalism and a white utopia make this a unique kind of uh, experience. Mm-hmm. So I think that my mom helps me realize the strength and like being able to look at something from advantage that other people don't have access to. Yeah. Did you ever get mad at her? Oh man. I get mad at her all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh but you know I love her. We I mean she she frustrates me because now she's like she's 60, what am I? I think my mom is 63. Mm-hmm. Uh so she is like my brothers get you know, oh, I wish mom. I'm like, man, listen, man, mom's 63. This is it. Whatever we got, this is the mama you got. So you need to figure out how to work around your feelings and appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, I was shocked um, by my, my reaction was to be shocked mm-hmm. to. So your mother is in a relationship with one of the guys that she was in a relationship for mm-hmm. a long time was Chris. Yeah who was one of your pops. Yes. Chris was not the best guy <laughs> in many ways. He yeah. was a pimp. He beat your mom. Mm-hmm. No, he never beat Oh, her, he didn't. That, that's right. He, yeah. That was that was somebody else. Yeah. But he's, he's sick. Yeah. Your mom gets the message that he's sick. hmm And despite the badness of their relationship she hightails it to seattle yeah from portland to go get him what was that about what's that about i mean she has described him as the love of her life um and i can see like having grown up around him he was so charismatic like Mm. he was really like a light despite all of these things like i didn't know that he was struggling with the heroin addiction when I was young, like I just remember basically all good things except for when they were arguing. Um, and so I think that she fell in love with that. And also she had her own kind of abandonment issues. She didn't, you know, her father had left her. She had lost her mother. So clearly, and this is pre anyone thinking about therapy. Um, yeah. So she <laughs> that she, wasn't one of the checklist. Yeah, no, items. <laughs> no, no. We definitely didn't have that. You know, you might go talk to your preacher. But I mean, as a child, you don't even have that as an outlet. So I think she had these already ideas. She was looking for a male figure. Mm. He was charismatic and he wanted uh, the job. And he yeah, he wanted the job. He wanted a lot of jobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I think also I think that our relationship also made their relationship stronger because he wanted a son. Mm, and um, you wanted a father. And I wanted a father. And my mother probably recognized how close he and I were, which probably strengthened their relationship or made it harder for her to leave. And isn't that the line you use in the book when people questioned why she went up there, that this was your son? He was her son's father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that she at that point gonna... she was a she had a biological son by him, With my him. younger brother, yeah. So, yeah, and and his namesake as well. So, um I think my mom is just one of those people be because she has gone through so much trauma, she is 
very reluctant to give up on someone who is experiencing mm-hmm. trauma. Like maybe that's her greatest gift is like the ability to forgive and also to stand by someone who's really going through a struggle. Yeah. So that's another one of the things that we haven't talked about and we've got about 15 minutes mm-hmm. uh, left and I've got a lot I want to try to cover. So one of the constructs of the book. So the book has a unique uh, structure. Mm-hmm. To me, as a reader, the structure reflected the kind of discordant elements of your life mm-hmm. and that they each piece served another element of you telling that story. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you meant it that way, but as a reader, mm-hmm. that was one of the one of the things I took away. So one of the constructs is you have survivor stories. Mm-hmm. And describe for us why you use those survivor stories, what they are, mm-hmm. and and the pictures that you have, which yeah. I wish hadn't left the jacket. Yeah. Uh, but okay. <laughs> back and forth with uh, my beloved scripter. Yeah. Um, so, so survival stories, survival math uh, came out of a time in my 20s when a guy confronted me with a gun and uh it it was he was like you know are you looking for me for me and he pulled the gun out and uh you know I, it was early in the morning there were no witnesses outside i i had a gun but it was locked inside my car it was like all of these uh considerations i was making uh and then i responded to him no i'm not looking for you and um I remember him saying, yeah, because I'm a real killer. That, to me, is maybe the most striking thing because he did end up murdering someone not more than a year later, and then he murdered uh, another guy in prison. So when so I was, he was... when he was he saying was he was a killer, he's, yeah. a, he's a killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was not playing yeah. around. This wasn't any BS. <laughs> so um, when I was reflecting on that, I thought, wow, like, those decisions that I was making or calculations I was making in between him asking me a question and me responding was survival math. Uh, I, so I had that as an, as an idea and I wrote an essay about that. And then um, I also wanted to speak to Black Lives Matter about this idea that black men were dangerous. Um, but I didn't want to do it in like an op-ed or go on CNN and talk about it. And so I came up with the idea to take photographs of men and I was like, well, who better to do than men in my family? And I wanted to decontextualize the men. So all of the men are shot in black and white. They're shot in a black T-shirt. They're shot from the waist up in portraits. I told him to remove any kind of contextual uh, information. No so like, no. Yeah. So I wanted to, like, take everything away from this black man and say, do you think he's dangerous now? This is mm-hmm. essentially the question I'm asking. What do you see in this man? Mm-hmm. And then because I had had my own survival story and I knew that all of these men have spent significant time in Portland, if not all of their lives. I was interested in what kind of things they had to survive. So I asked each of them, what's the toughest thing you survive? And then I wrote their answers in a second person narrative, like a short story, essentially. I chose second person because I thought, well, I don't think most readers are going to have this kind of a similar experience. And I really wanted to close what I thought is an empathy gap between a possible reader and, you know, the guy who's chasing after his girlfriend who's running all over the country with his daughter. Um, And so, yeah, so it was like wanting to speak to Black Lives Matter, really detesting this idea of black men being portrayed as dangerous, 
also wanting to know what kind of things my family had to survive in Portland. Um, all of those things kind of built the survival files. And the reason I I coupled that with your comment about not wanting your mom, not wanting to give up on people, mm-hmm. is for me as a reader, those stories gave the totality of humanity mm-hmm. of each person. Yeah. You know, like nobody's perfect. Right. Um, and maybe their imperfections seem blunter, mm-hmm. but... I think what they do is you get a holistic view of them, as uh, even without the pictures. Mm-hmm. To me, you get a holistic view and you say, right, I would like to meet this person. Yeah. I, yeah. I would like to know even more about them. Mm-hmm. And and that brings me to this other question. You, you begin the book by talking to, um, writing a letter yeah, to Marcus. Marcus. So Marcus is the first black man. Yeah. Um, and you go on in that um, letter to basically tell him what's going. Yeah, catch him up to speed. On catch this, him up to speed. On our home. <laughs> on your home. Yeah. And you close with this, and that is because if these centuries attest to anything, it's to the incontrovertible truth that this ain't our Eden and won't be, for that was never the intent. Yeah. So that's a dark view yes. of the world today mm-hmm. for a a black person, for people of color. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what do you think, if anything, could begin to chip away at that? Not that it would be Eden, but where would it be a... Yeah. More well, what what would it take to be a more welcoming, more, more supportive environment? If you could pick like three things that ought to ought to and could happen, what would they be? I would get rid of the electoral college mm. and remove all of the obstacles to the populace voting. Voting. Uh. Because then we get a real report of what the people want. Um, well, I don't know if we get a real report, but we get closer get to closer. a real. We get closer. closer to a real report. I think now there's so many fail safes. I mean, and now it's like, to me, the last month or two of our kind of political climate has made me a disbeliever in American justice. I just don't. That's, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing yeah. with you, but it is heartbreaking. Yeah. So, like, I was like, wow. If I was 20 years old and out on a corner or however I'm making my money, there's no way you could convince me. There's. I'm not no way, but there's very little chance you could convince me that I'm wrong or that I deserve to be punished for this. Like, I'm like, yeah. If 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 the people in power are exemplars more than anything else, like how could you tell me that I, sh- I should go to jail for this or I'm wrong for this? Um, so, yeah, so I would say to me that's it because I, I, I just don't, I disbelieve that people who have power would just willingly give it up. Yeah. So there's no like policy you're going to, unless we're talking about voting, like I don't think you can create some kind of educational policy. I mean, my friend just wrote a book 
uh, Diversity Inc., Pamela Newkirk, about uh, diversity and inclusion and how they've been trying to implement these policies since the 60s, since Lyndon Johnson. 50 years. Yeah. And it's not working because they don't want it to work. Mm. You know, like, I mean, think about how many, how, how many years. Well, yeah, but it's also, I think, human nature. You know, like who that power, has who's power, give who's it really giving it up? You know, you might see it a little bit, you know, to make it seem like it's a more fair game. But like no one really gives up power. They take it. You know, I went to Cuba and, uh, you know, where they had the coup. Like you could still see the bullet holes in the old mm-hmm. palace. Like they came in and, you know, Castro took that. And no one was like, hey, Castro, we think it's let's take on this comment. And uh, he's like, no, this is how it has to go. And. Because we don't have a government where you can just come in, you know, like, and take over the White House, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? Keep writing. Mm. Keep being a disruptor. um, Keep sharing information. Mm. Um, Because your book, as you said, one of your audiences is a young black man. Yeah. Or man of color. Yeah. And... Is it to show them that you there is a way to get out? I mean, I think it's... And I don't know if get out's even the right word to use. Yeah. I think it's to show them that here's another example of a way to exist in a world that mm. m- that might accrue you some value, accrue you some respect. I love respect. that language. Um, because I think that's really what we're after. Even the people who are powerful, they like, they want to be respected for it. They want to be admired for it. You know, it's not just, I want all the money to make all the decisions. Um, We all want respect. Yeah. Right. So So, I think that this could be writing, speaking, uh, you know, living an intellectual life is just not something that's promoted enough, I guess. Like I, I didn't know what a public intellectual was when I was in high school, even in undergrad. Yeah. Um, I didn't encounter any writers. Uh, I never saw a black writer until I was Walter Mosley came to Powell's books in like 2001. Yeah. We share a favorite book, though. Yeah. John Edgar Weidman's My Brother's Keeper. Oh, my God. I'm that about to, to write me, the foreword for that. You are? Yeah, is it being gonna, reissued? Scribner is about to reissue it. Yes. That to me is in my top 10 books of rearranging my brain. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. I actually have to reread it to do the foreword. That yeah. is a powerful book. Yeah. So how old were you when you read that? Do you oh, think? I was old. I was in my second graduate program. So I had to be yeah. 30, yeah. 32. I've never like met that. him. I'm dying to meet oh, him. Oh, yeah. he's. We have an event actually in a couple of weeks. Where? Uh, it's in It's in Santa Fe. Oh, yeah. I was going to say if it was in New York, I'd come in. Yeah. So... Two two things mm-hmm. uh, I want to cover in our last um, six minutes. Okay. You're a dad. Yes. Uh, you have a son. Mm-hmm. You have a daughter. You close the book with a letter to your daughter, yes. Justice. How would you describe yourself as a dad? Um, I would describe myself as a committed dad. Um, I would say that I'm funny. Uh, I try to, you know, to like lift the spirits of my children. I would also say I'm a tough dad in terms of my expectations. Um, And I try as much as I can to be an example for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think, you know, I look at them when they're together a lot and I say to myself, wow, like 
like we, I remember we went on a trip to Montreal. And I was With like, both kids. Yeah. Because they have like, different moms. They have different moms. And I'm like, man, you all are getting some experience that I, like, I, they got a passport. Both of them have, I didn't get a passport until I was like 35 or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, you know, this means something, y'all. You know, y'all going to have to do something with your life, right? This isn't, you know, like you are living the kind of life. I mean, granted, you know, they aren't coming up in a two-parent household, and there's a lot of obstacles. So I'm not saying that it's not a perfect life, but yeah. I think it's that they have. It's not a gilded path. Right. But they, I'm I'm placing expectations on them, and I'm letting them, and they also know about my past, so they also know that there's very few excuses that I will accept for why they don't succeed. Mm. And, Mitch, what would you consider as the impact for the book that would feel satisfying? You spoke earlier that you're pretty ambitious for mm-hmm. your for your work. What you've been out there a year, you've been a writer for a long time. Yeah. What what would you consider success? If somebody said what about survival math? Um I I don't think I mean, to me, the success that's left for this book is for uh, history to place it in a pantheon of other Mm -hmm. great nonfiction books. And for that to happen, we're going to need some distance from it. So, you know, like if someone says, I can mention survival math in the breadth of uh, uh, the fire next time, or mm-hmm. between the world and me, or or sister outsider, or mm-hmm. I, I want that. Like I, I wasn't writing this book to 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 kind of be the book that people talk about for the two or three weeks that people yeah. actually talk about a book. I was actually writing something that I wanted to stand next to whatever great nonfiction, and uh. I feel confident about what I did. You know, obviously people have different tastes and, um, you know, the other thing is I want people to appreciate the intellectual rigor mm. that's in this book. Cause I think, how it's could one you thing. not? Well, I mean, I think, I don't know. The notes, the notes to <laughs> the book could the be a book. <laughs> you could take the notes and make a book. <laughs> yeah. Scales, uh, the chapter on scales, which we didn't even talk about, yeah, could be a book. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think if people appreciate appreciate the kind of um, the thinking that's in the book, and if 10 years from now we are mentioning this book in the conversation of, you know, oh, I should have mentioned uh, the Argonauts maybe from the last mm-hmm. few years. Like, I think those are books that, like, you know— not just a book for a season or a year, but a book that stands up. Mm-hmm. So I hope people are reading this 10, 15 years from now. Yeah. So I'm not going to be the first one to say this, but I think it is. I think that um, for a reader like me, for other readers, there is so much here. But the thing that I think is most um uh most important to its to its life mm-hmm. its long life mm-hmm. is you are so honest mm-hmm. in the book and i think people 
appreciate that kind of honesty because it isn't preachy. Mm -hmm. It isn't trying to tell you how to think. It's saying, here it is. Yeah. You you take from it what you, what you want to take from it. Yeah. And I'm not telling you what to take from it. And those are the things that I think end up being books that have long, long lives shaping lots of people's brains. So I know I'm not the first one to say this, and I won't be the last, but I want to thank you for writing the book. Thank you. And I want to thank you for taking the time to have a conversation uh, with me. We've been talking to Mitchell Jackson, uh, the author of Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.